0: Introducing Lewis Scott and Films of 1991 Hi there, um, welcome back to Films of 1991 with me, Lewis uh, for episode 16 where we are going to talk about Guilty by Suspicion and we'll start with the details obviously at first so it's directed and written by Erwin Winkler, cracking name that. Um, the cast includes Robert De Niro, Annette Benning, George Wendt, Patricia Wettig, Sam Wanamaker, Chris Cooper, Martin Scorsese, and finally Tom Sizemore. Include, that's most of the cast, one well, the most uh, notable ones. A uh, brief synopsis. So in 1951, a director returns to Hollywood from France. Coming up against McCarthyism, and we'll discuss what McCarthyism is in a bit. And well you know, because if you if you don't know what it is, yeah, it could be a bit. They explain in the film, uh, but like I said, I'll get to that. I just want to also point out that the imagery for this that I did in the thumbnail for this episode. I realise, does it really truly match the film? Because <laughs> I've put like, a, oh, what's it called? A crosshair on it. Like it's a, a film about like a sniper or something. um, Which is not. But maybe in the grand scheme of things, maybe it actually fits into the actual whole thing of Guilty by Suspicion. Um, But let's start off with a wee bit of background about Erwin um, Winkler. And then like I said, we'll talk a bit about the history of the subject matter that the film touches on. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I clearly need that yawn. So Erwin Winkler. He's um, still alive. He is 90 years old. Going strong. Interestingly, he's only directed seven films which, you know, is an achievement nonetheless. I either, you can easily look at, like, people of, of the ilk of Steven Spielberg or, uh, I'll try to think of our big names, Gamer Del Toro. Uh, oh, there's a name. That I literally answered my tongue. I've completely forgot it. Oh, the guy who directed um, 12 Angry Men hold on, I'm just going to look it up but basically what I'm trying you know we can sit here and go, oh he's only directed seven films, they can't can't be you know, that impressive it's like, well at the end of the day Sydney Lumet, that's it Sidney Lumet, he's directed a lot of films uh, sorry, anyway you know, it's an achievement to have at least directed even one film You know, you see the amount of actors now who now go into directing and maybe they only end up directing one film. I think, you know, you've got to have people who trust you, from the producers to the cast to, you know, the studio, if you're going for the studio system, which gets talked about a lot in this film, funnily enough. So fair play to him, but he's produced 64 films. Executive produced 64 films though, and you're like, Well, I'm like, that's someone who clearly knows about the film industry and business. You'll start producing films, he started producing films in like the 50s, right up until well, he's executive producing the next Creed film, the third one, which I think is next year. So you think about that from the 1950s to now, he's still producing an executive producing, he clearly knows what he's doing. And one of those ones uh, from the early days is Double Trouble, which is an Elvis Presley (laughs) feature. Exactly. There you go from 1967. He produced Wolf of Wall Street in 2013. And this is fascinating. He produced The Mechanic, the Bronson one. From 72, and the Statham remake in 2011. And there you go, like that's someone who's, you know, they could have easily not included him. So he could easily be like, I don't want to get back in that, I did that. I don't want to be involved again, you're going to ruin it. No, nope, I'm going to put my opinion, I'm going to go with it anyway. And he did the first Rocky film in 76, and he did Raging Bull in 1980, and he worked. He, you know how I said he's doing, he's producing the next Creed? Get a load of this. He has produced every single Rocky film bar one. Bar one. That's mental. Absolutely mental. And you're like, well, which one is it? Well, he did Rocky one. Yeah, he did Rocky two. He did Rocky three, four, five. The only one he didn't do was that one when they came back and you're like oh that was not a good idea which is rocky balboa the one that does not get talked about and then creed happened but he was there for that interesting that the film the one that just you know fell off to put it one way or if you want to do puns was out for the count <laughs> oh um was the one that he wasn't on board with. So he could say, maybe he had influence on in that, but whatever. So he basically put it this way, he's actually one, the, probably a perfect person to write and direct this film because he knows the ins and outs of the film industry like the back of his hat. And considering that he worked during the late 50s into the 60s, which covers pretty much where this film is situated. And on the point of where this film is situated, let's talk about McCarthyism. So this is from a description from the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> yeah, remember that? And if you don't know that, they used to make tombs. I don't know if they still do, actually. I didn't think they're still about, but online they're still about. But back in the day, let's talk about back in the day. Like <laughs> they were still printing them when I was. Yeah, used to print these massive volumes of just everything that apparently happened in the world when I say apparently I'm like you know it's it's got Britannica in the title so it's going to have a very skewed I would say view of the world when it comes to some um, happenings and instances and maybe not the most mm. both sides of the coin description of stuff but anyway but I thought it was best to get from like an encyclopedia sort of thing rather than wikipedia or or any other sort of just solely website source because they might not describe it well enough or the details might not be quite right but here's a brief description of it so mccarthyism is the persecution of innocent people using powerful yet unproved allegations u.s senator joseph mccarthy of which is mccarthyism is named after charged people with communist subversion and high treason in the US federal government in the 50s. His accusations were readily accepted by anxious post-war Americans. Because this is the thing, it's, it's and the film at the end, and you know this doesn't ruin the end, but at the end it's it says that for the after, because the film is set in 51 and goes into 52. So it basically covers a year, I want to say, or if not a year, just short of, or just more of a year. Yeah, because there's a there's two segment three scenes where there's clearly a Christmas happening. So I presume that is more than a year. I think it's more than a year actually. Just a bit though. But anyway, that's besides the point. At the end of the film, but then because at the start of the film it has a little scroll up just like a star Wars, obviously not quite as you know, um, describing what the situation was at the time that we're entering the film. And then it tells you that on exiting the film, what the situation was after what happens in the film. And basically it was saying that as much as McCarthyism really, and the, the, what it was, the house committee on un-American activities which was set up in 1947, by the way, um, the the consequences of everything that happened through that was that it lasted for 20 years. Oh, <laughs> apologies for that. Um, a little brief um, <laughs> break. Uh-oh. Um knock at the door. What are you going to do? You're going to have to answer it. can't have people waiting. And so because of that, I completely lost all my train of thought. Um. Yeah, we were talking about McCarthyism, that was it. But yes, oh, that was it. At the end, it says, you know, it wasn't until 1970 that all those people who had been quote unquote convicted were, especially in the film industry, it was you know because it primarily focused on the film industry, whether that be writing, directing, acting, what have you. Um, and there's been other films that have been made about this. I should say as well. There was Trumbo with um, Brian Cranston, um, and there is another one that I cannot for the life of remember. But it's all to do with being put on the so-called blacklist, which was those either. Even the, these folk actually came out as communists. And that was obviously a big no-no for them, the un-American activities, honestly. It does sometimes, it does sometimes boggles belief. The way the world has just taken ideas and certain outlooks in life and made that something... That either one cannot be comprehended or is an absolute attack on a whole nation it's like especially in the states i'm not american right so i can't really speak to everyone's experience in america but if you think about it if you're split up into that many states they're all individual countries at the end of the day like the landmass of some of those states are probably the size of some countries in europe let alone anywhere else like think of Andorra, and luxembourg those are tiny geographically earth-spanning, mass-spanning countries. They're tiny. You know, probably like 15 of them could probably fit in, you know, state of New Mexico or so. I might have to fact check that, but we'll see. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, um, so like I said, it, was, it wasn't until 1978 that everything, that people there were then let back in for the cold. You know, like the John Le Car- John Le Carre? Novel. Anyway, so, let's talk about film. Now right from the off, you know this is going to be a sumptuously produced film. The production value and cinematography are a very high standard. I just want to give a shout out to the cinematographer uh, Michael Bauhaus or Bauhaus? Bauhaus? However you want to say it. Um, who was German he was actually born during Nazi Germany which oh, must have been horrifying by the way he has worked on a lot and he has done a hell of a lot of Martin Scorsese films funny enough he's in this film which we'll get to as well at the end but um he's done Goodfellas he's done Air Force One and he's done like Gangs of New York so the guy knows what he's doing. You know, you think of those three films. Now, I picked those three specific because they're very different. Goodfellas is very much mob film. And I remember the special cinematographer Joe Pesci's... Is it a spoiler to say what happens in Goodfellas? Because I know someone who hadn't seen Goodfellas. I think they've seen it recently. And I remember being like, how have you not seen that film? I remember as a kid, that was like, it was Godfather, Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction. You had to have seen those three films you know if you're going to be like i don't know an adult or you'd be like oh i'm doing something naughty because i've seen these three films but anyway joe pesci's death scene let's just say that okay i've done it right apologies the way that shot is stunning really really stunning um you know the air force one's very much an action filler set on a plane you know, and that's actually got some really good cinematography, especially it gives you the idea of like the emptiness of how big a planet is. Tackle the fact that you're condensed in the space. And Gangs in New York, um caveat I haven't actually seen Gangs in New York. I don't know, I was just never I'll probably eventually watch these that film and some other films. Which I'll care not to mention that are big films that I haven't seen. But, you know, it's that way where you're like, really? Do I have to bother? (laughs) Anyway. But, so, you know, so, so, like I say, cinematography is very high standard. The acting, especially the script, are absolutely knocked out the park. It's, It's a bit weird to say. But, you sometimes forget how good Robert De Niro is. Or, stroke was. When I say was, I mean in past films. I'm not saying, you know, he's still very much alive. Also, if you don't know who Robert De Niro is, pff, what am I supposed to say about that? He is an absolute behemoth in you're thinking about actors now, well, those who were probably born in like, those who were born maybe in the 70s or 80s, yeah, 70s. Those who were born in the 70s would have grown up and watched a hell of a lot of Robert De Niro films you know think about Raging Bull like I said good Goodfellas, um, Godfather Part uh, 2, Cape Fear which is personally one of my all-time favourite films, um, it's a remake I should say uh, of the a remake of the Burt Lancaster film um, but he is tremendous that opposite Nick Nolte, um, what else is there I've completely oh what was it there was one more I was going to say there Ooh. I mean, all even the meet the fuckers. He is absolute standout. Um, but there's one. What was it? I was talking about Cape Fear, and I mean, look, people go say Taxi Driver, obviously. Um, uh, but what was I going to say? There's another film there. Oh, what am I talking about? Heat, man, Heat. Love that film too. Love that film. Al Pacino, obviously, it was a big deal at the time. Interesting fact, um, Michael Mann, I think that's his name. I hope I got that right. He directed that film. It's actually a remake of his own film that he made two years earlier, which was called something like... It was called something like Confidential LA. I know there's an LA Confidential with... You know, Kim Basinger, Basinger, I'm always going to do that family joke whenever I say her name but anyway, I'm going off topic massively anyway, but you know it's, it's sometimes, especially now when Robert De Niro is doing all these grandpa films have you noticed that? he did, he did, he did a grandpa film with Zach Efron he's done a grandpa film now with um, Christopher Walken I think he done a he did a sequel I think to that Zach Efron one I was like, don't get me wrong Oh he did also he did that intern the internship one with um Anne Hathaway. And again, you know, earn a paycheck, there's a job. Look, I work a job, it's not my it's not my love in life, but it means I'm in a paycheck and I'm hopefully get to do some things out with it that are creative minded, including this. But at the same time, we're like, wow, you really are just hitting on that mark every time. But anyway, like I said, sometimes you just you forget, you do forget how, because you... <sighs> he is so natural in this role. He just exudes a natural charisma that if bottled and sold would go for astronomical numbers. Honestly, there are so many so-called well-established actors that don't even have An ounce of the charisma that De Niro has in his pinky. Like, he just is so good in this. He plays the man with morals who does not budge on anything, yet feels the weight of the world on his shoulders. I mean, that is De Niro's bread and butter. He displays subtleties and micro-expressions with such naturalness. I don't know if that's a word. Um, I imagine that people may think that he is just playing himself. But so what if he is? He's bloody good at that too. You know, because, I, I, oh, that was it. I remember the other film, The Fan, with Wesley Snipes. He's excellent at that as well. That film's not really talked about it a lot, but that is a absolute mint of a film. Because in both The Fan and in Cape Fear, Robin Newell plays a really threatening, almost, you know, kind of sociopathic, psychotic elo- um, tendencies. Obsessiveness. That's it. That's the word. Are you please add such tety? But this, it's not that it's like there's still that intensity, but so to do it's in a more sort of real world, real life setting. And I'm not saying all these other films are not real world, real life setting. But he's able just to bring this tension, this feeling of oh my god, I've got to get through this day again. Um because At the end of the day, he's got to play someone who is both naive in in the beginning of coming back to LA from being abroad and, you know, wanting to get back into the swing of things. But on the other side of things, he's then got to start playing over the course of the film. The realisation of, oh crap, am I ever going to be able to get back to what I want to do? I'm just I'm, all, I'm just really impressed by that because I think it's really hard to... I'm like, okay, his character is a film director and his also, I should say, I should point out that his film character in in the film is actually a fictionalised one. There is references to real life characters and I feel like some of the people maybe in the actual film themselves... Are playing real life roles, or they're playing versions of people in real life. Like don't mean all, and the thing is, the acting all around is top notch. But I just want to quickly say again that I think he's really he's excellent playing every man who just wants to live his dream, and there's points where he literally references that directly. When it looks like all hope is lost. Um, I think that sometimes when you watch films and they, they're supposedly playing the Everyman, and you look at them and you're like, nah. Don't be good When you walk down the street, there's plenty of beautiful people. And everyone's beautiful in their own way. But at the same time, not everyone looks like they were made in um, algorithm, AI, machine you know what you see on social media is a microcosm of the world wherever whatever platform that excuse me whatever platform that may be you know I'm not saying that an everyday person is ugly by any means not at all but there does come a point where you have to stop and go well not everything is Super clean. Not everything is no hair out of place. Not everything is sun tan evenly skinned and pearly white teeth, and they're all straight. And you know, there's no freckles. There's no spots. There's no nothing. Um, and and that's what I like most about Robert Neil is that he has his, he, you can tell, he's, he's lived a life. He has his rough and tumble about him. He's a very striking looking man, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, it's not like you're going, well, he wouldn't he be in that situation. Or, he, he looks so out of place. You're like, no, he's exactly where he should be. He's exactly where he's supposed to be. That's exactly where I expect to be there. But like I said, the turn around is top notch. Particularly Annette Benning and George Went, who... If you don't know George Webb, uh, he's Norm in Cheers. That, you know, where well, everybody knows your name. Absolute classic. Um, uh, Benning plays De Niro's ex-wife and mother of his child. She plays it with an air of exasperation and concern for both child and and the directions that De Niro's going. And here's the thing, when it comes to films, especially of that era, and even now, what am I saying? The whole, there's this, and I think I've probably spoken about this maybe previously, but there's a tendency to, if you cast, if you cast, even whoever you cast in the role as the partner of the main character, and specifically most, more, Likely or not, it's a heterosexual couple, a heteronormative couple, sorry. Heterosexual, heteronormative couple, and it's a man and a wife, and the wife, even though they're played by a very well-known actress, they are always sidelined. The on There was points where I was like, this is where this is going to go, especially when they introduced their character. I was like, well, oh, this is going to be a bit awkward. And I think it's through the sheer will of Annette Benning. She plays it really well. She plays it super fucking well. There's points where you can tell that she literally wants to lose her rag, at De Niro's character. She wants to go absolutely nuts at him. Yeah, she keeps it on the level. Why? Well, one, because she's been here before, and that's everything. You can tell there's a history there, and that's from both of them. The way they bounce off each other is perfect. We've been here before. We'll go, go around in circles. Why do I need to go through that again? And second, my child does not need to see me go nuts. as that. Simple as that. I don't want to put my child through that. And that actually ties into something I going to talk about. But there's a scene. Because basically, De Niro's character gets paranoid over the course of the film. Because the FBI tail him. And there's a point where he thinks he's being tailed. And he goes, he blows up this guy. He just goes right into the guy's face and, stuff, and just like shooting screaming. I was waiting for that because I just wanted, I did want a piece of the little De Niro rant because he's so good at those short bursting rants. And his kid's right there and witnesses it. And you can tell the kid's absolutely traumatized because he's never seen his dad like that. But you can tell with the interaction between Annette Benning and De Niro, Annette Benning knows that De Niro has that in him. Um, and so she's great, she's really good, and you know, especially in the final sort of scenes, though, they don't you know, I guess they make it all about him, uh, even though uh, I don't want to ruin the film too much, but anyway, but no, I think she was excellent, she was really good. Um, and then George Went plays. First, a jovial, sarcastic, naive best friend and scriptwriter. Apparently, he's writing a script for Marilyn Monroe. Um, and who's back and forth with De Niro is excellent as well. It's like how two best friends would speak to each other. He's the one that when he comes back from France, picks him up. As usual like, oh, what's going on here? What's going on there? What are you doing to myself? Do you know about this? Oh, that's crazy here, like, all this, all that. And then there's a critical scene between Went, De Niro and Benning. And basically it's not a spoiler because at the end of the day the committee is subpoena subpoena subpoenaing, is that even a word? Basically it's sent out to all these folks. You'd be like, You're coming to the committee and you're gonna give us names. You're gonna say that you were part of the Communist Party, you're going to say that you're a communist supervisor, and that the Soviet Union supervisor, a supervisor sorry, not supervisor, sympathizer, you're to apologise for all that, you're going to and then you're going to name us everybody else who was there, who might have been there, who thinks like you. And so, basically, Wentz's character, whose name is Bunny, I think, he, at first is like, do you know what the point where De Niro realizes that this is nothing that can just be brushed under the carpet and something that's going to affect him for, for, for what seems like his whole life? He says to Bunny Wentz character, "You need to get yourself a lawyer." And Went being naive and whatever is like, "I don't need a lawyer. I'll be fine. I don't need a lawyer. Why do I need a lawyer? I haven't been part of the Communist Party. Why do I need a lawyer?" And then. I'll talk a bit more about when he goes to New York and then comes back to LA. De Niro's character, but um, when he comes back from, is it when he comes back from New York? I can't remember. But basically, Went turns up at their house, and Went is asking. Ah, so Went asked De Niro for permission to name him in his sitting with the committee. So he's basically asking for permission to rat him out. To use him as an offering, literally as an offering to the gods, for so that he can have safe passage to the village over yonder. It's basically what he's asking, and it's so well played so well played because you see the desperation went, on Went's face. He doesn't want to do this, he feels like it's his only way out. And it's also ridic- it's also funny because, like, that's the only name you can put forward is your best friend. And they play and Benning's there being like almost in stunned silence. And they have and her, her and Went almost share like a, a tearful embrace. Like it and De Niro's just sat there the whole time. On almost like a resignated disbelief at the fact that yeah, of course it was gonna come down to this. But yeah, so excellent all round. And so the script is super strong and that's obviously part of this whole thing because it's at once conversational and equally thought provoking. It's the sort of thing that may seem a little obvious, but when you're covering a subject like McCarthyism and the impacts of the cold war um, or the upcoming cold war, because it was funny, like looking back at history, it's like, so the cold, the world war two happened. And then it's like and then the cold war it's like well it wasn't quite it was like it it sort of because as much as they were all rid of this evil it's almost like america needed another evil to preoccupy itself that's a, a different podcast about political stuff another time and there's a tendency when discussing um subjects such as this there's a tendency to fill it with over information overload and to make everyone speak in grandstanding speeches. The fact that there isn't that oh I'm trying to read my notes here. Oh right, yeah, sorry. I was trying to read my notes. As soon as it can't read my own writing, I write words and I'm like, what on earth is that? Yeah, so basically the fact that there isn't that, yet the thoughts, feelings, strains, worries are still conveyed in such a clear and nuanced manner. Highlights the greatness of the script even more. Like just in like conversation like just in the whole like there's one where he basically when he goes to New York and he see eventually goes to no friend's house and they're sat there and the conversation lasts not even a minute there's only like two sentences said from each of them practically and and you know exactly what's going on and it's and you're like, exactly, because not everyone stands up there and gives a 50 minute long speech about why this is important and that's that's why the phrase show, show me, don't tell me becomes really important because okay, yeah, you can say what's happening, but at the same time you don't need to overstate what's happening you can show me what's happening and give me a little bit of context through words or vice versa, like That's why I think the script is just top-notch. I also want to point out, I should have said this before, where George went. I completely forgot this. That his nephew is Jason Stakis. Like, who knew that? And his dad was a photographer who is the first photographer in America to photograph someone in the electric chair, that's crazy. I know, absolutely mad. And I read about how he did it. He basically had a camera hidden in his ankle, it, because that's just total stuff out like the pulp novels. Oh, crime fighting in that. Anyway, but I also forgot about this. well my also one of my all time favorite films is the Little Rascals from the nineties. I forget that George Wentz in that. He plays a construction foreman and he has a toothpick in his mouth. He's excellent. It's a very small role, but, oh, that's such a good film as well. Um, and he's in this other film from the late 90s. <laughs> this, I only discovered last, tail end of last year. It's a film with Dennis Hopper. It's called Space Truckers. I'm not even kidding. It's called Space Truckers. And it's about a trucker. It's about trucking in space. It literally is about trucking in space. And uh, it's absolutely whack. It is absolutely mental. Absolutely mental. I, you just need to go watch it. I think it's still on Amazon Prime last time I checked. Space truckers. Just, just like, get a ton of snacks. And pick a day where you have nothing to care for. If you drink, definitely have a drink with it. If you do other things, maybe do that with it as well. Because I swear, it's an absolute trip. But anyway, moving on. Overall, this film is crafted beautifully. The costume design is of such high quality. Each character has such an identifiable individual style depending on their story progression in the film, these styles do do tweak a little to effect that, make you understand partly what the character's attitude is becoming. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's very slight though. It's not so obvious. It's not like... um, I'm trying to to think of something. It's not like... uh, Aye, right, go ahead. So it's like you got a family full of hippies and, you know, they have a child and that child grows up and they initially seem hippie and they're doing the hippy-dippy thing and, you know, free love, eh, whatever, do doo And then one day he comes or they come home from school or they come back from somewhere having been away and they're, like, suit in the boot, broad-creamed hair, straight-laced and, you know, it's all about government government powers and they are correct and, they are, they are this and this is all hockey cock or whatever, you know what I mean. It's not like that. It's not that extreme of a costume change. We haven't gone from like flares and tie-dye t-shirt to absolutely suited and booted to the tightest degree. Um, No, I'm talking about you know you kind of start and you're wearing, you know, you're just wearing sort of like, you're just like, especially Annette Bening's character. It's like, she starts off and she's because I'm guessing he's De Niro's character's played Alan Lee, but that's never referenced. I kind of like that. There's like a lot of subtext and what have you. So he's obviously, paying alimony probably and child support or you know in the 50s i'm not sure exactly how good that was or how much in the law that was all that sort of stuff but um it sort of was that way where you can tell the relationship just didn't work out it was just one of those things I had a kid and it just didn't it just end up not working out but they're on good terms you know they're on good enough terms put it that way you know i think he obviously helps out with raising their fucking child in that um And then, you know, she basically over the course of the film, because of what's happening to De Niro and him losing his own house because of everything that's happening and what have you, and her moving out of the house that they were living in, into an apartment, she ends up taking a teacher teaching role. She gets back into teaching and so her sort of image slightly changes and she seems like she's now sort of more going out into the world a little bit but it's not like that she was a sh- living a sheltered life but and it's also that way where I feel like De Niro's character almost was initially trying to keep her in this sort of sheltered bubble of existence and there's reference to that and one maybe the reasons why they split up in the end because he is so, so over consumed with his work with being in the studio, with doing directing and filming and everything Um, But I'm kind of drifting off again, but um, to expand on the costumes, I think also the fact that a large segment of those in, quote, powerful positions all wear suits, yet in amongst them, the suits were different ever so slightly between the different sort of characters. It's just so perfectly reflected like for example the suit that's worn by the by the producer who's clearly like supposed to be some sort of wise guy type who thinks he's really big in the biz and knows every knows everybody and what have you but clearly a lot of it's for show his suit is very like big shoulder wide collar you know sort of big bombastic suit and you compare that to the suit of the Tom Sizemore's character, who plays now, I'm trying, they never say his role, but basically, I think he's an agent for the committee. So, I don't think he's technically FBI because there are FBI in this, but I feel like he's like a clerk for the committee, if that makes sense. And his suit is he's got a very straight tie, it's black and white, it's very simple. And, like, yeah, you can tell that he has a good role, but you can tell he's a lackey. Like, it's not as brushed up as, say, the lawyer or the studio manager, studio boss, whose suits are like double breasted, perfectly cut, not stain or mark on them. Um, and so, like, and, and they are all beautiful suits, by the way, but it's just. And it's just such a great microcosm. It's like, yeah, here you go. All of them wearing suits because they are the establishment. They are the authorities. However, in between all them, there's obviously very different avenues. Obviously, and it gives it, it, visually it, it almost helps you to recognize and be like, ah, okay, so that person's like this and that, things like that, because you know, loads of a lot of first impressions are based on what someone's wearing And what someone looks like and what someone sounds like I think those are the three really your first reactions are about but another element that was perfect was the music which is done by James Newton Howard who hears some of his credits and again I'm loving these credits because I love picking stuff which is like yes highly recognized film highly esteemed films and then some absolute beauties, which I love, which got probably ripped. But in 1990, so the year before, he did the soundtrack for Pretty Woman. In '93, he did The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. Pretty Woman was Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. In 2008, he, and I didn't realize this, so I knew that Hans Zimmer is did all three of Christopher Nolan's Batman, but for The Dark Knight, it was him and James Newton Howard who coded it. So I'd, I need to look back. I'm not sure actually if in um Batman Begins. Is that what it's called? Beginning of Batman? I can't believe I've forgotten what that's called. But I can't I can't remember if that one was just handsome or if he had someone on board. Or if in the last one it was just handsome or he had someone on board. But anyway, but come on, the Jewel in the Crown is in nineteen ninety six. He did Space Jam. Now, bear in mind, he did the score for it, not the soundtrack. So he's not with the Quad City. Is it Quad City DJs who did um, "Everybody Get Up"? we gonna do. It's a Space Jam. Oh, I love that song! I once at uh, one a place I used to work, we were able to sometimes pick our own music to play. I picked that. <laughs> I picked that because I was like, it "Ain't gonna have anyone else listen to this." Uh, but anyway, <laughs> but the score is so tied to the time. Yeah, it's timeless in nature with its accompanying emotional vibes. Like it is so beautiful. A score. It's full of emotion, and like I say, it's full of the sounds of the time. Like there's obviously a lot of soft jazz a lot of sorry, up-tempo jazz, a lot of jazz in it, and there's a bits of blues here and there, you know, there's not so, there's it's just a, like, as I said at the top of this episode sumptuous it's something I actually, I would consider maybe getting the album of the original score actually, I might look at that after this, but I'm not sure if it's widely available, it's one of those things where I don't know if this film was ever really talked about a lot um which is a shame, but back to the music itself, um, the songs, so I found out something the other week there that there's the soundtrack and then there's the score. So there's the original score, which is the music that is written for the film, composed and recorded for. Then there is the soundtrack, which is the series of songs that, you know, the director or the writer or the producer or what have you pick to put in the film. Uh, who knew there was an actual difference between using those two different terms? But anyway, the songs are directly from that period. Sprinkled throughout, I also fit the mood to a T on, on particular scenes. So there's when De Niro first gets to LA, there's a right sort of hey, we're in LA, you know, woohoo sort of vibe. And then when we get to New York, it's very much a different sort of vibe. And there's also. Uh, there's a section where the tele- TV's been left on, television's been left on, and it's Louis Armstrong singing away. Also, but not a big, well, from in my opinion, not one of his massive hits, which is quite nice actually, because I feel like there's some Louis Armstrong songs that get overused. It's a shame, not in the sense to take away from how good the songs are, but you're just like, come on, Louis Armstrong did plenty good songs. You have to use the two that oh, everyone knows. Um, but yeah. Like I said, music all around. It really fits the film perfectly. And speaking of moods, this film is all about moods. The change of scenery from LA, Hollywood, to NYC, to back again. You know, as I said before, I've referenced that before, so now I can actually bloom and talk about it. So, yeah, LA and Hollywood is full of sun and brightness and sleek design and posh houses and well-dressed folk and big offices and lots of sturdy furniture. But, yeah, at the same time, there's smoky back rooms. There's lots of hubbub. There's lots of, you know, posture almost, if that makes sense. Like, there's a lot of pretense. There's a lot of um, pretentious vibes, I guess. But there's a lot of, for show facades. And then New York, it's like, it's cold. It's dark. It's grimy. It's dirty. Personally, there's nothing really wrong with that, to be honest. But it's just a great clash. And the way it's filmed, and the way it's shown, the set design, the production design is excellent. And... Um, and then you include into that the use of weather. Um, and it's all framing the sense of sunniness sunniness and naivety that develops into a drich reality. Despite being sunny even when drich. So what does drich mean? Drich is a Celtic word. Um, which basically, I think I might have talked about this before, but I'll reiterate it again. So drich is basically a Celtic word, which means that, you know, it's that sort of day where it's it's miserable, it's grey, it's dark, it's overcast, there's no sign of sun, it's definitely going to rain, and it's definitely going to be cold, probably windy. And when I say, despite it being sunny, even when drich, so sometimes... Because like there's points in the when he's in LA where it absolutely chucks it down with rain, and you're showing that it's like a, it's almost like a, a desperate in time, you know, it's a oh downtrodden time, and it's now they're just, the rain is just absolutely laying it all out on them, and, you know, in New York it's like you can tell it's very cold, and, it's, ooh, and the steam's coming up from the vents in the road and everything like that. But even when it's sunny when he goes back to L.A., it's almost like the sun is, instead of it being a bright, sunshiny day, it's it's compounding, it's burning into him, it's burning in this feeling of downtrodden, never-ending fear and anxiety, paranoia. And so let's talk about the messages of this film so I feel that the overriding sentiment is that the whole McCarthyism uh, un-American activities committee was terrible and ill-informed and absolute nonsense because it all was really at the end of the day because look at just I mean And the thing is, I feel like there's still elements of that still going on. There's just always this constant fear of, oh, you have a different opinion from me. Now, don't get me wrong. There's people who have opinions who their opinions are absolutely insane. And I totally get that. But I'm like, it just seemed very much so that it was this idea that capitalism and buying things and... Consumerism were just they had to be they can't there's no nothing else. There cannot be nothing else. We cannot have socialism and we cannot have communism. And we cannot have any element of that. We can't integrate them all together to make some utopia. We can't even think about that, no chance. And like this paranoia that because World War Two is over, you know, we have to have and we don't no, now the new enemy is this is communism and we've got to get rid of it. And like, okay, things happened with Cuba and things happened with the Soviet Union. Of course, all those things actually did happen. But it's just like, jeez-oh, was it really necessary to do an un-American thing? It's like, at the end of the day, we're, you know, yes, I'm a proud Scotsman, but I'm not going to go up to someone because they said, I know, this is going to make no sense to anybody when I say this, so apologies. But this is purely for Scottish people who know a bit about football. But it's like if you come up to someone and you go, oh, here, Bertie votes was the best manager for Scotland ever. I'm going to turn around and be like, well, that's the most silliest opinion I've ever heard. But I'm also going to be like, I'm not going to be like, that makes you not Scottish. I'm just going to be like, you're trying to get something out of me. You're trying to rile me up. I'm not going to bite. <laughs> if you know, you know. If you don't, we can bother if you want but it don't matter But anyway. but in a month stats, our primary message is also one of friendship. fatherhood wanting to live a dream, not knowing what your life will be without it and what it means to be unwavering in your beliefs because that's Denier's character literally in the nutshells all those things that he covers in his in his um, in his role in his performance. It's the friendship with him and Bunny. You know, best friends they've known each other since school. You know, it doesn't seem like this thing will tear him apart, but it does. Then you got the fact that he's, raised, he's you know, he has a son that he doesn't see all the time. And he's trying to raise him, you know, to... You know, trying to be like, look, I'm not a bad person. yada, yeah, yeah, you know. You know, and he's, this, you know, the, child, the boy is like at school and he's getting teased at by his friends because, oh, you're a to call me. You know, that. And, and there's a brilliant bit where he's like, the genius character with about wanting to live a dream and then not knowing where life would be without, because he goes to New York and he doesn't have a plan. He just goes around Broadway and he's just trying to see if he can get a theatre gig. That doesn't happen tries to get an advertising gig, doesn't happen. He ends up working in this shop where he's repairing stuff. Then the FBI come in and that bit is absolutely insane. I will say that it's one of the most insane scenes that that actually happened. Basically the FBI come in and they interview the guy who owns and runs the store and he's perfectly nice. And he's like, yeah, he works really hard, yeah. Bear in mind, De Niro is literally two, three, maybe at max four meters away in the back, but you can actively see, they can actively see each other and he's just fixing something. And they're asking about him. And you know, eventually comes out and goes, says, if you're going to ask me something, don't ask him, ask me. I'm right here, just ask me. Ask me what you want to ask. And he's great because it's like, this is ridiculous. I get it. you following me. I get that. Fair, fine. It's annoying. It's absolutely ludicrous, but I understand. Yet, here I am. You've broken your cover. I mean, you. and the thing is, you weren't telling me great you're broken your cover now, I'm right here you want to ask questions about me, ask me and so because he's gone, he's ended up repairing this repair shop because it's like, well I can't get a job doing what I really love and want to do and then he goes to that, Benny has this whole bit where he's saying, I know nothing else, I do not know nothing else, this is what I want to do, this is what I've always wanted to do, this is always this is what I've wanted to live for, this is what I live for this is my dream, this is my everything and we'll get to my be- the best scene at the end because it kind of ties into that because, oh no, I won't read it, <laughs> and then there's the whole thing about his beliefs and him being like, look, yes, I went to a couple meetings to do with communism, fine, whatever. I actually got, it, 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 actually, I'll save that joke. There is a joke to do with it, which is quite funny. But it's like, look, I just, I just went to the meetings. I just went to the meetings and I believe in, the, in my right not to rat on people. I don't want to say people's names. You know, you can't just bend my arm just to say some people went to a meeting. You don't know what they're doing. They're probably doing nothing. They probably just went to a meeting out of curiosity. And so what if they maybe believe a little bit in communism? You know, it was just such paranoia and anxiety at the time. But yeah, I think the film covers all of that. All those sorts of messages and thoughts and feelings. And the fact that this film covers all that is a true testament to its quality. Now if I have any gripes, I haven't mentioned his name and there's reason actually. If I have any gripes, Chris Cooper doesn't feature enough. He's prominent in the beginning, but is there no more. Mentioned heavily. But not seen. Which I guess works, but I still feel it would have been good to have him featured more. In what way? I don't know. But there was points where I was like, oh, because he sort of it crops up actually towards the end. So the, the sort of last third and uh, I thought oh they're going to make but they don't and I get is there's a distance in especially if you know about Chris Cooper's character in this and he's great in when he's in it um, but yeah I don't know I just feel like I think he's very underrated actually um, I also feel that the ending is a great rubber stamp of uncertainty but something about it, the sound engineering is kind of muted almost so yeah, I talked about how there's no grandstanding of speech or that, and the end, at the end, the end sort of sequence of the film, you feel like that's about having. It doesn't. I kind of appreciated that. I kind of appreciated that because it was like neither side want because it basically ends with. I, I, it doesn't really ruin it. at the end of the day. De Niro ends up going to one of these committee hearings, and you know you're waiting for the big old this is a moral rule and all this what have you like you would get in like a few good men or uh jerry maguire oh, those are two tom cruise films but you know what there in those two films there's a lot there's like a particular point where there's a big old speech to make and it's rousing and what have you and you're waiting for that and it doesn't really happen and i kind, of, like i said I kind of appreciate that but I get the are cacophony of sound like there's so much going on but I don't know there was like in the mix there was something kind of lost that like, it wasn't very clear but you know look this is an exceptionally well made film with lots to enjoy and be interested in so so there's very little if none at all problems with it um, but yeah quick mention I already said I talked about Tom Sizemore but I don't need to talk about him um, Martin Scorsese is in this He's in two scenes, and you can tell him and Robert deal are best pals. Let's just say that. He's actually really good. He's a, kind of chirpy, you know, he's very much a director of the time. And it's interesting because it's showing how different people dealt with it. Um, and I'll get to that as well with my best line, actually, to do with someone else. And I also wanted to give a shout out to Patricia Wettig. I think that's how you say her name. She plays the wife of Chris Cooper's character. And I won't say how her storyline goes, but that is a she plays a role excellently from at the beginning being like full of life, loving mother. And like, she's a side character. So you don't see this full art, but she, in the moment, in the scenes that she's in, she positions herself and portrays that absolutely going from a loving mother, loves a social life, chit chat, to paranoid anxiety, anger, sadness, loss, and sort of coming to the end of the tether and trying to in desperation, all in, like, three, four scenes. Like, excellent work. Absolutely brilliant work. And sad as well, over the whole thing. But anyway, Let's talk about Bessie. It's when we finally see Robert De Niro's character direct, because he's a director, and the whole time he's trying to get a project. And he finally gets a project with, you guess it, the wise guy producer. Now, it's on a Western and he, and there's it's then talk about cinematography. It's brilliantly done. So he, he, he comes on set and the guy gives him a script and he's like, oh, I need to read the script. So he's like, that's the script. Don't worry. Well, yeah. You know, we'll win an Oscar or we'll walk down the aisle or whatever. That's the big shot doing all this chat. So then De Niro stands there. He's like, who's the AD? He's me. He's like, okay. And he was like, what's your name? Okay, what's your name? And what's your line? what's your line? And the camera pans around the whole time where he's telling you what the scene will involve. So it's going 360 around him with like four or five people around him. The lead actor, AD, probably cameraman or camera engineer, uh, probably supporting cast members as well. And the camera goes right around and it's showing you how natural he is, how good he is. Not with what? not with what he's necessarily saying. Yeah, he's saying the right things, but it's the way he's able to command everyone in a nice, calm, cool way. He's able to picture stuff perfectly, explain it perfectly, and people are vibing and get on board, and then the AD at the end is like, well, that's not the script. And Robert you just naturally turns out, it's like, well, it is now. And it's like, it's so beautifully done, because you're like, I get it now, because there's little um, teases of him doing storyboarding. And going over a script um, to do with projects before and with this one. And there's a. Actually, no, I'll save that. There's moments. Um, but yeah, no, it was great because you've you seen all the story points. I was like, well, am I actually going to see the guy direct? I actually thought we weren't, but the fact we did was really good. And it was, like I said, it was done beautifully because, like, yes, he's established. He knows what he's doing. It's not like it's a charlatan thing. It's not all an over the top grandiose thing where he's shouting, shouting through a megaphone and screaming at that guy. No, none of that. And that's compounded with the see with two scenes later, the next day on set. But about how good he is, clearly, at what he's doing. But I'll save that. I'll save that. That's for you to watch in the film <laughs> if you watch this film. Um, and the best line, no. So the best line goes to Chris Cooper's character. And it's literally at the start of the film. So you get the scroll down of what McCarthyism is and what was happening in 1951. And then you open this smoky sort of quiet room. And there's Chris Cooper. Uh, there's a committee basically at one end. And Chris Cooper at another with uh, a lawyer. And, you know, they're basically grilling him. They're grilling him. They've clearly been grilling him. He looks so disheveled. There's so much smoke. His ties and down. His the place, His hair. He's looking so drawn out. And, he's, and this is his line. Don't make me do this. Don't make me crawl through the mud. Now... Spoiler. He clearly crawls through the mud. But uh, but Chris Cooper plays it brilliant in there. He plays it brilliant in what he's like afterwards. And him and uh, Patricia Wettig's relationship. Because that's, you know... And she can't believe he's done it. Just excellent. So, let's get to the details. To the numbers. Whew. So... God, talk so much. So on IMDb, it got 6.5 out of 10. On Rotten Tomatoes, it got 65%. On, and you know, some others. On Meta or Metu, I can't tell. Uh, it got 64%. I think it's Metacritic, actually. Sorry. On Metacritic, it got 64%. Because uh, that compiles critical reviews. Um, Amazon providers. Um, Sorry, providers. Amazon. People who watched it on Amazon. Amazon users. There you go. Geez. Average of four point three out of five. Pretty high. And then Google users liked it. Who liked it? Eighty three percent. That's a hell of a. That's a pretty positive. That's an overall pretty positive viewpoint. I would say. The budget was sixteen million. This is, you know. A decent amount, but it's not the most. Box office made nine nine 9.4 million. Now, if you know what the big phones were in '91, you can tell why, but you know, I thought this was absolutely absolute great film. And what am I giving it out of five? I'm giving it 5.4.5. 4. 5, four and a half stars out of five. It was excellent, don't get me wrong, it was great. But I guess it's one of those films which you make the watchability. The rewatchability is maybe not quite there. It would be more if you were studying, maybe you'd rewatch it again. But that's another on the can. Thanks all so much again for taking the time to listen. I hope you keep enjoying my journey through 1991. Next time, we're doing a rom com classic, Frankie and Johnny. Till then, take care and look after yourself. Cheerio. Thanks for listening to Films of 1991. Come back again.